Hello and welcome to what is the first episode of Almanac, the Oxford Middle East podcast. My name is Piotr Schokes and today I'm joined by Frederik Brokhova and Michael Memori to discuss Netanyahu's threats to annex the West Bank, the normalization of the relationship between the United Arab Emirates and Israel, and where this leaves the Palestinians. Since the moment of its birth, Israel has yearned for peace with our Palestinian neighbors and peace with the broader Arab world. For decades, that peace has proved elusive. Peace transcends politics. He is saying that he is giving legitimacy to illegal colonization program in the West Bank. That this is the end of the notion of a two-state solution and that anyway, Young people across the Middle East are ready for a more hopeful future. How do you have a Israeli-Palestinian peace deal if the Palestinians are not part of it? We are 200,000 more than the Jewish Israelis. So Israel has to face a reality. I'd like to begin bringing in Iran because until this normalization, the largest bit of news coming out of the Middle East um, was Trump's assassination of Qasem Soleimani in January and Iran has been the actor against which the UAE, Israel and the Trump administration have positioned themselves. The statement itself says and I quote the three countries share a similar outlook regarding the threats in the region and while it does not mention Iran the implication there is very strong. Michael would you want to delve into that a little bit? It's obvious that Iran is one of the biggest factors underlying the what what is now called the Abraham Accord, because honestly, that has been the basis for covert relations between Gulf states and Israel for some time now. Interestingly enough, however, very soon after the announcement of the Abraham Accord, the UAE did say that this was not in direct response to Iran and wanted to downplay the, the role of the shared perceived threat of Iran as a factor going into this normalization deal. Iran obviously outright criticized a normalization with Israel. Iran has no, no interest whatsoever in normalizing relations with Israel, perhaps even sees it as an existential threat, as does Israel vis-a-vis Iran. And its whole The basis is grounded in anti-Zionist policy and is very much intertwined with the the cause of the Palestinian states as as it sees itself as a sort of a pan-Islamic power safeguarding or championing the rights and the the, the well-being of the Islamic states or of, of, of Muslims in the region. And if you if you look at the Israeli perspective as well, it's very clear that for them, security has been the overriding priority for pretty much everything they've done in the region recently. And I think the best way to represent that is in three different ways. In a more general aspect, and I think the one which is most visible historically, they've always wanted a degree of detente with the Arab powers in order to not be at war constantly and also deterrence through overwhelming strength has also been a central tenant in the defense uh, more recently as as the news has shown there have been a number of attacks which are very difficult to explain in iran explosions in sensitive sites and fires in sensitive sites and that fits with the israeli 
priority of wanting to limit the capability, whatever capability that may be, within Iran as much as they can. And that's obviously is much closer to home for Israel as well, if you think of the Iranian relationship with Hezbollah in Lebanon, with whom Israel has a long and difficult relationship, and especially with Hamas as well in Gaza, with whom Iran has a, uh, a relationship. The third aspect of their security is focused on Palestine, where again, Israel's propensity for overwhelming power clearly plays a hand where they want to where they want to have a position of overwhelming power when they negotiate with the Palestinians. And that is something we'll discuss later in the episode as well. But there, the peace deal negotiated by Trump uh, between the Palestinians and the Israelis, although the Palestinians did not participate in it, focuses very much on the security of Israel. And it seems also through their politics that that is the overriding priority which they have. However, though, despite DOE being possibly the most influential state in the region, with the possible exception of Saudi Arabia, it does not seem very likely that other states will follow its lead when it comes to normalizing relationships with Israel. In terms of the reaction of other states in the Middle East, it's, it's been a mixed bag, to be honest. There have been some states that have rejected and condemned the, the normalization deal outright, such as Morocco, Tunisia, as well as Turkey. Iran has, has threatened to expel uh, the UAE ambassador, cut off diplomatic ties. And this is tied into the uh, competition in the region between Turkey and the UAE. Both have been vying for regional influence for a number of years now. Interestingly enough, Despite Turkey's condemnation of the Abraham Accord, Turkey itself has extensive ties with Israel, both diplomatic as well as economic. So it, it, it's very interesting, you know, this, this sort of cognitive dissonance when you, when you hear the extreme condemnation that Turkey makes of the, uh, you know, the UAE's decision and its own relations with Israel, Lebanon, Bahrain, and Oman have all reluctantly supported the the deal, and obviously say things like, "Obviously, it's uh, the UAE's sovereign right to make this decision," and they see it as a, a slightly positive development. However, none of them, and no other state in the Arab world, has followed up with this normalization deal by announcing its own plans to normalize relations with Israel, very much to the disappointment of Secretary of State Pompeo, who visited the, the region, went to Israel, went to Sudan, went to Bahrain and the UAE with the very blatant purpose of talking with them and convincing to follow suit. You know, you're completely correct. And something which has also been very noticeable about this normalization is where it leaves the Palestinians. Because historically, of course, there have been certain requirements from the Arab Peace Initiative for what relationships Arab states are going to have with the Palestinians. I was interested in what uh, Michael just said about um, this normalization being seen as something positive or like how it's been tacitly approved of by other Arab states. Because if you think about this normalization without the presence of the Palestinians, if you completely disregard the Palestinians, I would say that for the region, this is a positive development. However, 
there are Palestinians who obviously have been stabbed in the back to quote Palestinian Authority President uh, Mahmoud Abbas. He's called the deal despicable and the Palestinian Authority has recalled its ambassador to the UAE in protest. And for the Palestinians who have not even, who were not even consulted in the process of coming to this agreement at all, the message is really clear, which is that they have no say and that their voice does not matter when it comes to the annexation plans or just the general um, diplomacy in the region right now, which obviously is only a formalization of what they perhaps already knew. But nonetheless, it's very disappointing for them. Like historically, Palestine has been the cause around which politicians around the Middle East have rallied and which they've used to rally the citizens. But now it seems that the security vis-a-vis Iran has become the new central rallying point. Do you think that is why they've felt able or comfortable betraying the Palestinians? Or is there another reason for it? I think definitely the existential threat that Iran poses to other actors in the region certainly plays a role in the, the relations that Arab states have been fostering uh, with Israel for some time now. Now, these relations obviously have been more discreet, and that obviously served a, a dual purpose and, and, and balancing uh, act, really, between practical security needs in terms of coordinating with Israel on security intelligence sharing in order to balance the threat of Iran, But at the same time, by having them discreet in this ambiguous zone, being able to placate the domestic audience, therefore have their cake and eat it too. I will say, however, that perhaps this is not just about Iran. And on one hand, uh, Arab states might feel that there's just no momentum, for example, with the Arab Peace Initiative of 2002 calling for complete normalization with Israel, but with the caveats that Israel returns all lands that have been occupied since 67, and, you know, the establishment of a Palestinian state. I mean, since that initiative, what has happened? The Palestinian cause has not only stalled, but it's degraded. I mean, Israel has continued with, you know, settlements And unfortunately, we haven't seen any leadership in the international realm, particularly from the U.S. I mean, unfortunately, the EU is not in a position to fill the void of American leadership on this regard. I mean, either it's unable to or it's been unwilling or both. They just don't want to get their hands dirty. Because I think you raised something interesting that there's been a lack of international leadership. And I do believe that... A reason for that might be the total lack of you know, agency which the Palestinian Authority seems to have. Despite having a fledgling state, they don't have the opportunity like Israel, like the UAE, like other countries to express their needs internationally. And it's something which Friedrike hinted towards earlier by saying that they had recalled their ambassador from the UAE and that internationally is about as much as they can do because they don't have the structures necessary to spread the voice any further. What they've done within Israel, though, recently, especially since the peace plan from Trump was announced, is quite interesting because what they 
um, have announced is that they have been absolved of all responsibilities which they have to both Israel and the US. As part of that, they've stopped Security Corporation, which has been probably the place where they have had the closest relationship with Israel, where they exchange information about potential terrorist attacks, about potential reasons for unrest. And they've done this in an effort to show Israel the burden Israel would have to carry should they annex or should they move towards undermining the Palestinian Authority. In addition to that, they also have rejected um, taxes, which they traditionally get from the Israeli government. These are taxes collected in Palestine by the Israeli government, but which the Israeli government then gives back to the Palestinian Authority. And these taxes account for roughly 60% of the Palestinian Authority's budget. So it is, in effect, torpedoing themselves in order to put pressure on Israel. And the goal here seems to be to create a degree of instability in the West Bank and Gaza, because previous occasions where they've broken off security partnerships with Israel have all led to spikes in violence. And I think it's a very clear indication that they don't have many cards to play. And because of that, they are doing what they can in order to create as much attention on the situation as possible. And both Fatah and Hamas have applauded this move, also because it's very popular within Palestine to to start putting pressure on on Israel due to the uh, anger at the annexation plan caused by Trump and now the normalization and the total loss in faith many people have in the whole process. But also in in Israel, there's been a substantial amount of resistance to the annexation plan. So Israel is generally quite divided about the annexation plans. Only 4% of Israeli society says that annexation should be at the top of the Israeli national agenda, which is obviously a really, really small percentage. Israel is dealing with a corona crisis, which has hit it quite hard. And even before that, the corona crisis started, there was already an economic crisis, uh, unemployment. There are some shocking, in the past few years already, there are some shocking numbers about uh, children living in poverty in in Israel. A lot of Israelis, even if they perhaps are not entirely against the idea of annexation, or they have some ideological they have an ideological understanding of the annexation. It doesn't mean that they actually support the annexation right now. That's only 4%. And actually, 50% of Israelis right now believe that annexation is bad for Israel, as it is a really costly project that, inst- that instead should be spent on the well-being of Israeli citizens. So there is a massive gap between government policies and what the majority of society wants. That being said, those, that 4% of Israeli society that believes that annexation should be the priority right now is mostly the far right. These are mostly the settlers, which are over half a million, around 600,000 settlers that are, are living in the West Bank right now. And these are usually the hardliners on annexation who believe that it is a really important um, next step for the, for the Israeli state. Um, but even the settlers, interestingly, are divided about the annexation plans because some of them, some of them see it as the, regarded as the opportunity that they've been waiting for for over 50 years, while others reject it simply because the annexation plan as presented by Trump it leaves the potential for a Palestinian state. And for those settlers and far-right Israeli citizens, the price of a Palestinian state entity is considered too high. In the Yesha Council, which is an umbrella organization made up of around 24 heads of settlement councils, they were split, uh, and a slight majority supported Trump's annexation plan. But then again, they reject clauses like freezing construction in settlements uh, or reaching an agreement uh, with Palestinians. And uh, this also means that Even on the far, far right, who are the main proponents of the annexation plans, there have been protests uh, in around June 
About 1,000 settlers protested on a hilltop outside the Gush Etzion settlements, vowing to build more settlements in the areas marked for a Palestinian state by the peace plan. And then on the other side, on the complete opposite end, there have also been protests from Jewish and Arab Israeli citizens who believe that annexation jeopardizes all prospects for peace and is absolutely not what the Israeli state should be focusing on right now. So I would say that Israeli society is really split on the annexation plans and even in, within the far right, which is the small percentage of people who uh, are the predominant force behind annexation plans, even there is not a, a unanimous support for the annexation. Yeah, I, I found something similar. There's a lawmaker in Israel called um, Bezalel Smotrich, and he said, and I quote, either the settlements have a future or the Palestinian state does, but not both. And it in effect highlights what you say, which is that unless Netanyahu or a future Israeli government go all the way in settlement building and annexation, they will always, interestingly enough, face resistance from the most far-right parties within their government. But in addition to that, there's also more political cost for Netanyahu because a major problem with the annexation is how expensive it is. It's estimated that it would cost about 12% of the national budget to annex even only parts of the West Bank. In addition to that, the military establishment or the security establishment are not happy with the annexation plans because they feel not enough preparation has been made for how they will deal with the potential uprisings and unrest which would happen should an annexation come. So there have been a number of very high-profile ex-military individuals who have expressed very strong resistance to Netanyahu's annexation plan because they feel it would represent a danger to Israel, which is bigger than the gains in which it justifies. Interestingly, I've also spoken to a couple of Israelis who actually think that the annexation was never supposed to happen. But there are, especially on the left wing, younger people who say the annexation, no one in their right mind would embark on such a costly project. It would threaten the lives of a lot of Israelis. Inevitably, violence would break out. And there are Israelis who think that this is simply a project for leverage, which the normalization has been greatly facilitated by the threat of annexation. And so there are Israeli citizens who are angry because they feel like this whole project is just a political game between Netanyahu, Trump and other political leaders who are trying to achieve something else and that the annexation is just leverage in this whole, whole project. And in addition to that, is that one of the strongest cards which Israel has is their position as a reasonable act in the Middle East. And they have always managed to portray the Palestinians. They've always managed to, I'd argue, misportray the Palestinians as the party in the negotiations which is unwilling to compromise. And should Israel move towards annexation unilaterally, they would lose a lot of the goodwill which they have on the international scene. And that would severely undermine their future capabilities to, to create goodwill in both Europe and in the US, I believe. I think what's really interesting is that for the first time in years and years and years, we saw European leaders finally say, actually, if this annexation goes through, we have to put our foot down. We can't accept this anymore. I feel like Israel has finally reached the limit of what um, democratically elected leaders in Europe can accept without losing face. How can they support Israel and then condemn other, other countries and explain to their constituencies why they are still having relations with Israel? And I think that the annexation would push 
European leaders to the point where they can no longer support Israel without that leading to a political embarrassment. Michael, it's something you hinted earlier as well. Do you think the same applies to regional leaders within the Middle East? Because you mentioned Tunisia and Morocco, but I guess official annexation would be an indefensible step for very many leaders in the Arab world as well, especially considering how much of a hot-button issue Palestine has been historically within the Middle East. Yes, I mean, it's very interesting to see where the trajectory of Arab opinion um, is going with regards to the Palestinian and Israeli issue, and perhaps the, the divergence of what the normal person on the street thinks about it and how their governments are, are going about it. And there are several reasons behind this. One is just the, the motivation behind this. And I, we, we sort of talked about this earlier. Part of it has to do with the perceived Iranian threat. Another part of it, however, has to do with, as we said, the momentum of the issue on the ground, the reality on the ground, um, as well as the motivation of certain states to use uh, this for their own ends, have been looking forward to attaining certain military technology, particularly the F-35s, which it was reported as a big reason why the UAE went into this normalization um, accord in the first place. And we are hearing the fallouts of it where Israel has reneged its um, approval for F-35s to be sold to the UAE, and congressmen in Washington have also expressed their displeasure at this, uh, at this prospect and its implications for the qualitative military edge that Washington has always tried to preserve for Israel. It's good that you raised Washington because I wanted to get there eventually because America is the most important ally Israel has. And it was also in a poll I saw that 25% of Israelis would not want to participate in annexation if it wasn't with American support. And it shows how, how central a close um, alliance between the two countries is. However, there is also strong indications that the policies which we've seen from Israel and from the UAE, in all honesty, have only been possible with Trump in the White House. And so uh, the next thing I wanted to raise was the potential effects of Biden becoming president, because first of all, he doesn't have an as pro-Israel stance as Trump has had. However, he's still by no means critical of Israel. And he also has the left wing of the Democratic Party to deal with. Another poll in the US showed that only 3% of people in the US who self-describe as liberal support Israel more than they support Palestine. And with the ascendancy of Congress people like Ilhan Omar and Ro Khanna, we have very strong opinions on American foreign policy. I am curious what you guys think of what will happen there should Biden become president. So while Biden has negatively expressed himself about the annexation, has, has declared that he's against the annexation, I have not come across um, any statements or speeches by him or Kamala Harris that make me believe that he will stand against Israel if it decides to annex. In fact, a few days ago, Harris, who would be vice president if uh, Joe Biden were elected as president, reiterated that Biden will not impose any conditions on US aid to Israel, saying that assistance uh, would not be linked to, linked to any political decision made by the Israeli government. So even if Biden himself does not support the annexation, the 3.8 billion US dollar that in military aid that Israel receives annually 
will not be impacted if they do decide to proceed with annexation while uh, Biden is president. And I think possibly related to that is for the wrong content of the peace plan Trump made with Israel, I do think it often said the quiet part out loud because there is a sentence in there which says that it is unrealistic to expect Israel to compromise on its security issues. And while I don't think American presidents would say so, it has been the unspoken basis of their relationship. It's correct what you say, Federica, that the US will probably never truly put pressure on on Israel the way we wanted to, because even J Street, which is considered a very progressive think tank in in the US and Bernie Sanders spoke there during his election campaign in 2019, they still believe in a two-state solution, which we'll discuss this later, but I don't think is, you know, it's, it's not up with the times, to put it that way. Also, what you're saying, Piotr, it's interesting that historically, if you look at the election cycle, which is obviously for every four years for the presidential elections, that during the elections and when re-election is, is about to happen, so about the, the last year of the, of the four-year term, presidents have always been a lot more vocal about their support to Israel. That's actually a really interesting pattern that you can see historically. And so I think that Biden is, always, is also really afraid to say anything that might alienate voters who are still predominantly pro-Israeli. This is also an issue that I think is becoming more and more divisive in the US right now. The camp of people who are pro-Palestinian is, is growing, but the camp of people who are pro-Israel uh, is growing as well at the cost of the people in the middle. We don't really have an opinion about this. And so that's, that is, this is why I think that Biden is so quick to support Israel fully because he knows that it's a very dangerous political game to position yourself on the other end of that spectrum. And I think there's actually been a, an, an episode recently, which I think is extremely telling of this dynamic, which is uh, the controversy uh, concerning Linda Sarsour. So Sarsour is a popular figure in progressive Muslim and Arab circles and is a supporter of the BDS movement. Um, which I think we'll discuss later on as well. And she appeared as a, in a panel on the Democratic National Convention to discuss voter engagement among the Muslim constituency. And Trump's campaign condemned her appearance, saying that Biden endorsed her bigotry against Jewish people. So there's a very quick transition from the BDS movement and critical criticism of Israel to anti-Semitism, which is also, I think, is a historical pattern that we can see. And Biden's campaign immediately distanced itself and denounced Sarsour and her, and her views. And in fact, I'll quote the campaign spokesman who said, Joe Biden has been a strong supporter of Israel and a vehement opponent of anti-Semitism his entire life. And he obviously condemns her views and opposes BDS as the, does the democratic platform. And so interestingly, he does not only say that he uncritically supports Israel, he also does not counter the idea that criticism of Israel is anti-Semitism. They have apologized privately about this controversy because obviously Muslim and Arab people quickly spoke out and said that this position was problematic. But it's really, it's a very telling episode because it shows an unshakable pro-Israel standpoint. It shows that during the campaign, every presidential candidate is really keen on showing that they uncritically support Israel and that we can equate criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism. I think related to that is also something which has become very problematic with the Israel-Palestine discourse, and that is that overall the best is always assumed of Israeli actions, while the worst is assumed of 
the actions of Palestinians. And this is especially clear if you read Trump's peace plan, where Palestinians are regularly referred to as terrorists and Israelis regularly referred to as a nation under attack. And while that is not a lie, it is also a very generous portrayal of the truth as it is, because Israel is a country which has to a much larger extent than vice versa, been violent towards the Palestinians. And the discourse has become corrupted to such an extent where support for the Palestinians equated to being, as you said, an anti-Semite or a terrorist sympathizer. And a part of that corruption of the discourse has led to the rise and fall, unfortunately, of the BDS movement, which has seen a growth in popularity in the last five years, but after that has hit quite a lot of resistance. The issue of security is also at the individual level, if you want to say it, um, rather than this macro level, with the BDS movement and the conflation of, of BDS, anti-Israeli sort of settlement and annexation policies with, with anti-Semitism. Now, we have seen this growing progressive clout within U.S. politics and for example, just very recently, Congresswoman Betty McCollum from Minnesota introduced the Israeli Annexation Non-Recognition Act, which aims to prohibit the U.S. from formally recognizing or providing U.S. aid to any of the areas occupied in the West Bank and annexed by, by Israel in violation of international laws, and definitely putting you know, conditions on any U.S. aid and staking it to this issue. But unfortunately, BDS is definitely a really interesting grassroots movement to apply pressure at the individual level and sort of from the bottom up to put pressure not only on the Israeli government, but also on companies, even governments, to really be selective in, in how you support Israel and really seeing where, where the money goes. And here we definitely see a, a, a reaction against BDS. At the federal level, we have seen anti-BDS laws try to be implemented by members of Congress that would make it illegal to, to partake in the BDS movement. And this has definitely been followed up by, I think, 32 states have adopted laws, executive orders, or resolutions designed to discourage boycotts against Israel. And the way that these initiatives work as that they require the creation of blacklists of activists, nonprofit organizations, and companies engaged in boycotts of Israel. They prohibit government contracts from being signed with people involved in BDS and also pension fund divestment. So we, we definitely see this, this backlash against BDS, which is, is, is very unfortunate. Do you, and this is a question for both of you. Do you think that there will also be a backlash to the backlash? As the polls discussed earlier show, being pro-Palestinian is becoming more common and more popular in Western Europe and America. I guess the question I'm asking is, will there be a degree of growing global awareness about the situation which can put pressure on Israel? I think the backlash against BDS in itself also shows its, its success. Because the fact that people think that lawmakers think and politicians think that this grassroots movement needs to be addressed and that laws need to prohibit participation in BDS shows the effect and the fear that they have for the effects that the BDS movement might have. I also um, know that in 
Israel, there's a lot of fear for the BDS movement. BDS activists have repeatedly been denied access to Israel. Um, this is something part of the screening procedure if you try to enter Israel that people that the officers at the airport will sometimes look at your social media and if it becomes clear that you're involved in any BDS activities entry to Israel can be denied and I think that the this these policies in combination with with the laws on state level in the US just demonstrate how powerful these politicians believe that BDS could be which in itself shows the success and the power of BDS already. I'll just add one thing that within, interestingly enough, yes, we could see backlash to the backlash against PDS. Unfortunately, at least on the Democratic side, we actually see the backlash to BDS being preserved, at least on the formal level. In the official platform at the DNC, you know, Biden, the Biden campaign did say that it was opposed to BDS and as well as any efforts to quote unquote unfairly single out and delegitimize Israel either through BDS or at the United Nations. So it, it will be interesting to see the momentum of the efforts to take down BDS and whether or not BDS as a movement itself has enough momentum to weather that storm and uh, flourish more. That brings me to the very last question I wanted to ask. It's something the episode has to certainly simply building up for because what we have seen so far is a degree of abdication of responsibility among Arab states, especially the UAE in this case, but also Saudi Arabia has said they are interested in, in following a similar path. Israel has shown that annexation has become a policy which is become broadly acceptable. America has also shown itself to not be an actor which can stop or will stop Israel doing it. And because of that, I thought the two periods in the past where the Palestinians have had the most attention from the world have been the two uprisings or intifadas in, in Arabic. And I was wondering, considering the total lack of faith in the process and considering the lack of capacity the Palestinian Authority has to do anything, has it laid the groundwork for potentially a third major intifada in Palestine? I doubt it. I really doubt it. Although I know that the intifadas were moments when the Palestinians had the most international attention, and in many ways the first intifada was also quite successful, limited success, but still, right now an intifada, the Palestinians have a lot to lose right now. They are currently struggling with the coronavirus, which has an impact not only in terms of public health, but is also predominantly an economic crisis in the West Bank and Gaza. This is taking up a lot of effort and, and attention right now. We've seen in Lebanon, the, after the explosion, corona ca the cases of corona are rising really rapidly because people are out on the street helping each other. And an intifada would also be an absolute disaster for the public health of the Palestinians. Plus, in June, when the annexation was still on the table, only 31%, so less than a third of Palestinians said that they potentially supported armed resistance, so another intifada. That was when the annexation was still a possibility, and that would be in the case of annexation. Since annexation is off the table for now, uh, I think this, this percentage will be a lot lower. And so I think that the number of Palestinians that support armed struggle at this moment, I think that percentage is extremely low. Well, taking that into consideration, do either of you then think that peace has actually come closer, thanks A, to the peace plan of Donald Trump and B, to the normalization 
of the relationship between the UAE and Israel? I would say that no, obviously. Um, I don't think peace is, is any closer. First of all, the efforts of the Trump administration have been, you know, if not one-sided, extremely polarizing um, to the actors involved. Um, the, the Trump administration has rarely, if at all, consulted authorities in Palestine and in a way have mimicked this maximum pressure campaign on Iran vis-a-vis the Palestinian Authority in terms of cutting off all aid, um, particularly to the PA, to Palestinian security forces, and to the UN Relief and Works Agency, really has just been pressuring the PA to sort of just give to um, Israeli demands um, and um, expectations in Washington. Now, in terms of the regional states, again, it, it's it's plagued by the the security issues of Iran and how the nuclear negotiations are going to be. Also, in terms of the Arab states, as we as we've seen with the fallout of the announcement of the Abraham Accord, you know, the Arab states are definitely not united on this issue. There are some states that believe yes, normalization and sort of you know saying that annexation is definitely a red line, but if you suspend that relations, this is not a strategy that is accepted by all the members of the Arab League. And in, in Washington, despite the obstacles that aggressive caucus have in terms of reframing U.S. policy into Israel, it has shown itself to be a strong enough force to at least affect the conversation. So even within the U.S., there's not a good idea or a unified idea of how to address this situation and to achieve peace and what final peace is going to look like. My answer to that question would be that anyone who believes or says that peace is closer due to the normalization agreement between the UAE and Israel is fooling themselves. Because, yes, from an Israeli perspective, having good and peaceful relations with Arab neighbors seems to contribute to overall stability and peace in the region. But as long as there's, and you know, the, the Palestinians have just been blatantly ignored in this whole issue. But as long as the Palestinian situation is not dealt with, you cannot create a stable and lasting peace without having this ticking time bomb in the middle of Israel, which are the Palestinian people who are just been, are being ignored. And I think that any move towards peace that is not including the Palestinians is not lasting. And then I have one more question, and that is about the idea of a two-state solution, because I feel it has always been a bit of a fudge. Ravi Schleim, the historian, has said that the two-state solution never existed. Rashid Khalid, he said in January this year that it was dead. But still, despite that, it is something that certain people within Israeli politics and especially within European and American politics keep maintaining as possible. Uh, my question therefore is, is this simply a balance which Israel is making in order to continue with the status quo, which is a very slow and unofficial annexation of Palestine, and they only say or keep the two-state solution alive for the benefit of politicians in the West? I think that the one-state solution is just something that needs a lot more thought, and there is a very little political will, both in Israel as, as it is among the Palestinians, to embrace the one-state solution. 
And therefore, it's much easier to just continue down the path of the two-state solution, which has been reformed and reused again and again and again. But I believe that it might have existed one day, but since the Oslo Accords and since the creeping annexation which is going on because of the settlements which have been skyrocketing since the Oslo Accords, the two-state solution is dead. And uh, it is really important to look at alternatives. Uh, however, the political will for this alternative is lacking. I will say that two-state solution or one-state solution, it's, it's, it's very hard to see a lasting peace. And, and either way, it's going to be a messy process. And I think one of the big issues at the heart of why it is, part of the rhetoric is Israel as a democratic, but yet also a Jewish state. So this focus on an identity of, of Jewish state is, is very exclusive. It's hard to square a democratic state that treats its citizens equally, but also focus on this identity that is also exclusive in nature. If you have a one-state solution, how are Arabs, Palestinians, and non-Jews treated? Are they even given citizenship? This is a tricky point with regards to the two-state solution. Given the reality on the ground and the, the momentum of, of, of settlements, my fear would be that we would see something akin to what happened with the Ottoman Empire and Greece, where we then have population transfers in order to, to meet certain expectations of what each state looks like and what their demographics look like. I think the, this topic of how, what peace looks like for the ordinary citizen, for, for Jews, for Arab Palestinians, which of those solutions is best? Because I definitely agree with Federica, I think what you were intimating, Piotr, that this phrase two-state solution really has just led to the status quo and a worsening reality on the ground. Thank you for listening to the first episode of Almanac, the Oxford Middle East podcast. Join us for the next episode where we will discuss the history of the Kafala system, its impact on the Middle East and the challenges it faces. Almanac is a student-run initiative from the Middle East Centre at the University of Oxford. The opinions expressed within the podcast do not in any way represent the official opinions of the University of Oxford or the Middle East Centre. It's edited and hosted by myself, Piotr Skokus, with invaluable and inspiring support from Lily Sullivan, Felix Walker, Michael Mimari, Hazar Mabdah, Max Randall, Frederica Brokhoven, Iman Farah,